Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Attentia, attentia, which is, of course, Dutch for Achtung, Achtung. Though I'm not going to attempt a Dutch accent, having nearly caused a diplomatic incident on Thursday in the live stream. For the, the regular listener who's not a patron, um, that probably sounds like double Dutch, what I just said then. On Thursday night, we do a live stream, a live cast, where you can see, see James, and I, James and I in the flesh live discuss matters of historical import, as well as engage in basic slapstick of the highest quality. Quite a lot of slapstick. And we had a Dutch uh, question for a Dutch listener. So I, you, I d- did a hilarious Dutch accent, and then mayonnaise, it turned out he was watching. Yeah. Exactly. The full mayonnaise. Hey, do you want <laughs> chips and mayonnaise with that? And... Um, uh, <laughs> Sexy girls, and um, uh, and uh, um, and he was watching, which was embarrassing. Anyway, hello, <laughs> welcome. Oh, to we have. What's well, so that? I and your <laughs> collapsing portrait um, uh, gag that you opened with, and using a brick from the Berghof to hold it up. It's the most James Holland thing I've seen in my life. <laughs> Don't worry, I have a brick from the Berghof to hold it in place. Incredible. It worked very well, though, didn't it? It was no more, no more falling of the uh, of the wren. <laughs> right but anyway um I, and by the way if you go to the patreon you can watch this live stream you can, uh, uh, uh it's it's up there for all to see anyway welcome to we have ways of making you talk with me al murray and james holland a big hello to simon who stopped me in the park yesterday in west london and said i love listening to this i've listened to all of them it's my morning commute that jonathan Ware, he was lively wasn't he yeah i do you know what? i listened to, to a little uh, back to a little bit of that and um <laughs> god he was it was like he just couldn't get it out quick enough, was it? Wasn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah. I will have. We'll probably have to have him back on so he can, so he can, so he can, he can squeeze the rest of it out. Anyway, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, many of you. Um, I mean, what I love, what I love is that 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 
the passion man you know that he's well he's and he's a younger he's a, he's a younger member of the afflicted isn't he i mean he yeah. must be what is he in his, his late 20s or early 30s i don't know and he really 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 wants to sort it out and discuss yeah, he problems cares. Yeah, he really cares. Anyway, many will you, of course, of you will have seen the explosion of a wartime bomb in Exeter this weekend. What a thing that is! Whoa. I mean, you just thinking, okay. I mean, I know that was quite a big bomb that they were they were um, um, detonating, but that was a hell of an explosion. That's just one. I mean, you can see why why, and you can see why Exeter got a bit hammered in the war, can't you? You know, a couple of nights of quite a lot of bombs going off and. You know, old ancient medieval city, cathedral city, and it's it's going up as toast, isn't it? Which is, of course, exactly what happened. And that's a controlled, you know, it's a muffled explosion that they've got there, where they've covered it in in dirt and. Yeah, but a hell of a lot of stuff, hell of a lot of stuff going up in the air, wasn't it? Crikey! And that thermal image was really interesting as well. That the heat of it too, not just the blast. Um, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, yes, as you say, I mean. What, if that's coming out of a Heinkel, they're dropping what a dozen of those each, or six of those each. Yeah, they can't go very much, can they? They can kind of. What was that? Was that a five hundred pounder? I think so. Yeah, so they can make them. So what's that? Five hundred pounds. That's like um, um. Yeah, they can. They can take about a ton. I think a Heinkel. So they can probably do four of them. Four of them, yeah. Well, there we are. Um, uh, uh, listener Glanville Bentley, um, watching that, was reminded of the famous Richmond Golf Club temporary rules of 1940, which she sent to us, and here they are. These are fantastic. Richmond Golf Club temporary rules 1940. Uh, uh, well, should we read them alternately? James, I'll do the odd ones, you do the even ones. Rule one, players are asked to collect bomb and shrapnel splinters to save these causing damage to the mowing machines. <laughs> <laughs> Keep calm and carry on. Uh, number two. In competitions, during gunfire or while bombs are falling, players may take cover without penalty for ceasing play. <laughs> and that's, that rule must be because some bounder said, uh, well, I didn't duck and cover in the in a bunker that hole I won that hole thank you very much <laughs> some exactly. of us has gone well I think I don't think that's awfully sporting old chap one could have been killed um, uh, number three the positions of known delayed action bombs are marked by red flags at a reasonably but not guaranteed safe distance therefrom <laughs> I mean it's just too good okay, I'm getting the health and safety executive yeah, yeah. on the phone for this one. <laughs> oh dear number four shrapnel and or bomb splinters on the fairways or in Bunkers within the club's length of a ball may be removed without penalty, and no penalty shall be incurred if a ball is thereby caused to move accidentally. Well, that's that's, that's very stuff. That seems fine, doesn't it? That's exceedingly yeah. Um, five. A ball moved by enemy action may be replaced, or if lost or destroyed, a ball may be dropped not nearer the hole without penalty. Well, that's good. So, so you're out on you're on the seventh hole or whatever. And a Heinkel goes over, a Dornier goes over and drops a stick of bombs. And if your ball is moved by the blast wave... You can put it back. You can put it back. <laughs> Assuming there's not a six-foot crater. Well, yeah, exactly. We'll cross anyway. that bridge as well. So number six, a ball lying in a crater may be lifted and dropped not nearer the hole, preserving the line to the hole without penalty. Can't say fairer than that. They've, They've thought, thought of everything. everything, haven't they? <laughs> Seven, a player whose stroke is affected by the simultaneous explosion of a bomb may play another ball from the same place. <laughs> Penalty, one stroke. <laughs> Herman Goering ruined my handicap. Yeah, 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 exactly. I would have been scratch if it wasn't for Goering. That's amazing, isn't it? Isn't that brilliant? Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I mean... Clearly, someone said we need to write some rules. Written in great, uh, those strike me as written in great humour, as much as as much as anything else. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's absolutely tremendous. Uh, and, and and Goebbels's response, I think, rather underlines the lack of humour. Yeah, yeah. He he had Lord Hawhaw use these rules to ridicule the British. This is what Lord Hawhaw said in a broadcast. Um, uh, um, after the rules became the equivalent of a 1941 trend on Twitter. By means of these ridiculous reforms, the English snobs try to impress the people with a kind of pretended heroism. They can do so without danger, because as everyone knows, the German Air Force devotes itself only to the destruction of military targets and objectives of importance to the war effort. <laughs> I mean, honestly. Yeah, I mean, as right. barefaced... Yeah, that's why, that's why they burned Rotterdam to the ground. As barefaced lies go. I mean, <laughs> That's quite up there, isn't it? 
<laughs> She's certainly up there. Um, oh, that's very good. That's very good. Uh, um, a huge thank you for um, uh, Glanville Bentley for jogging our memory on that. And Glanville yes, it Bentley reminds sounds me. like... It, yeah, he sounds great. He sounds like he should he be. He sounds like the of secretary of the golf club. Yeah, he's the guy. That... <laughs> I say, Glanville, would you write up some new rules, please, old boy? Oh, yeah. Oh, jeez, old chap. Um, I um, Yeah, it reminds me of that wonderful Pont cartoon of the, of the, of the blokes in the pub. Sort of sitting by the bar and leaning on it and looking completely unperturbed by absolutely everything, as though kind of time has, st- has stood still. And and the caption says, "Meanwhile in Britain, panic grips the nation." Or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely superb. Um, the other thing is this Chips Channon stuff. This um, uh, that Guy Walters drew, drew my attention to. Friend of the show, Guy Walters drew my attention to on um, on uh, Twitter this morning. Uh, Chips Channon was a he was an American socialite, wasn't he? Sort of a feckless bloke with lots of money. Um, uh, who became a Tory MP? I mean, is there a connection? And then, and then, uh, and was a bigger appeaser, a big fan of Chamberlain. Sort of um, was always trying to trying to be in with the in crowd. So when appeasement was cool, was was in, he was part of that movement. And then when it wasn't, he wasn't. And it and his diaries have been um, released unredacted and are extremely racy because um, he was basically he was a colossal shagger and seemed to get everyone to talk to him about that as well so here's an example he had a he had a boyfriend because he was a bisexual he had a boyfriend called george gage who was a courtier who dined at the french embassy dining in state with the king and queen this is one of today's extracts so george fifth and queen mary George was between Mrs. Winston Churchill and the Lady Mayoress. Mrs. Churchill confided to someone the other day that she never knew when she was safe from Winston. He exerts his conjugal rights at odd times and in unexpected places, frequently after a debate. <laughs> you know, I think that's a little... I mean, surely... I mean, people people call Winston Churchill an imperialist and a racist all the time, but I've not read about him being like a sort of randy devil. No. You don't really associate it, do you? That kind of side of things with with Winston. No, because he looks sort of round and sort of, you know, just slightly asexual. Well, and people in top hats don't have libidos, do they? No, certainly not with wing collars. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, I mean, I've read the original Chips Channon diaries, and I've got to say they're pretty entertaining. So I've uh, high hopes for these. Well, but but it's vast chunks that were redacted because it is all it's all his affairs and it's all the all the gossip and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's interesting the sort of that the, because there's there's him, isn't there? Um, uh, if you you know if you want beh- like a sort of behind the behind the curtain view of what's going on, and he was a big friend of Edward VIII, wasn't he? He was a big a big mate of of of, of his. He was an out and out socialite. I mean, he just knew everyone. His his address book was one of those. Really, really fantastic ones. That, yeah. Know, just knew yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because after the war, that because between the wars, you've, you know, you've got all those sort of people with open marriages. I mean, the Mountbatten's were at it too, weren't they? And and then and then after the war, that all sort of closes down, doesn't it? And you don't talk about it anymore. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Well, you know, sort of, you know, those. Yes, it's um, it's very strange, isn't it? Because you know, in the first very first part of the century, you know, it's absolutely, you know, you just didn't get caught at all you know that wasn't the way you you did things and you know young young girls lives could be completely ruined if they'd kind of so much as had a kind of a kiss before before marriage that all sort of changes post first world war doesn't it well it's like people have thought well what's the point in worrying about that there's a more you know that those moral shit those, those moral shifts are quite interesting aren't they but but yeah a lot of sort of bed hopping going on in the second world war inevitably again for precisely the same reasons that you know Whatever the people are thinking post First World War, they're now thinking, well, you know, I might get blown up tomorrow by a Heinkel. You know, I might as well. But it's Chips Channon and Duff Cooper and people like that who, the, if you want to have a look, but certainly what's going on behind the scenes in sort of Tory England, they're the guys to, they're the diaries to go and look at. Well, there's Hugh Dalton as well. He's he's not. He, I mean, he's. I don't. I don't know whether he was a serial shagger or not. But but there's a lot of di- a lot of diaries from those people at the top because of course inevitably they knew they were kind of going through great moments in history, so they keep them. So if you want to get a sort of you know uh, uh, a very clear view of what it was like at high politics in that period in the late 1930s and throughout the Second World War, it's pretty easy to find it um um we hope you enjoyed our sunday edition of family stories as well as an extraordinary private letter written by douglas barter from his hospital bed oh, that was something else wasn't it whoa but but I, and also that the ps this is you know I, I i crashed the plane doing something stupid that i shouldn't have done basically it it, it, it you know my fault my bad it, it's the most ext- i thought it was the most extraordinary letter yeah 
But it's okay because one of my legs is it was only amputated below the knee, so it'll be fine. Oh, that's all right then. Yeah, I know. I mean, it. I mean, he's twenty-one, so you might be. So you might be able to think like that when you're twenty-one. I think if I lost both my legs now, aged fifty-two, I'd think, well, that's that's me screwed forever. You know that, that how he managed managed to pick himself up and carry on is uh, is pretty interesting, isn't it? I mean, uh, absolutely determined to fly again, isn't he? You know, you're saying his love of flying hasn't diminished at all and he just wants to get back in if he possibly can. He is one of those people who, had the war not come along, you do wonder actually what he'd been able to do with himself. Um, uh, you know, he, he, he was lucky, that, in a way, perverse way, lucky that the war came and had a good war. So, I mean, it's... Uh... But also, he was very kind of sort of... I mean, he, he, he was a man of incredible focus, wasn't he? So he's, he's very tunnel vision. It's like, I am going to walk again very quickly. I am going to get back in a plane. You know, when we... You know, I am going to organise big wings. You know, I am going to fly recklessly over, over northwest Europe. Uh, um, you know, I am going to do this. You know, he's very kind of sort of... You know, and that's why I've always called him a kind of sort of my way or the highway type. You know, you are, you, you're either with him or you're not, you know, and... and be part of my gang and he's got that incredible force of nature hasn't he that is that is incredibly seductive that always attracts people um but but also well, and it's repu- also and, and, and repel people yeah uh, and and that's where he gets into kind of you know into, into sticky water but hot water rather there was also um a story of a young man known as rice because he loved his mum's rice pudding so much oh, and that was heartbreaking, not wasn't it that was not easy to read. Um, uh, uh, what, what did you have? You because I, I listened to it. Yeah, it's the it's the one bit of the podcast I actually do spend time to listen listening yeah, to no, every week. Yeah, I did. I went on a bike ride yesterday and listened to it when I was cycling around the the, the um, sunlit lanes of Wiltshire. Um, I also I loved the the Chindit poem. I thought it was it was lovely. Yeah, it was and good. Sort of wasn't moving. It? Yeah, it was really good. Strangely moving. There was, a, there was a couple of lines where you think, God, how are you going to get that word to rhyme? And it's, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you had the but, ducks, didn't you? You had the, the guy with the yeah, ducks, the, the, the top guy with secret the ducks, duck. Yeah, yeah, no, that was fascinating. Writing the uh, the red, you know, the, the red crosses on that. Yeah, but yeah, not fantastic. Fooling the hun. Yeah. No, not fooling the hunt for one moment. Um, uh, uh, yeah, and, and, and the, the kid, boy, and the boy, uh, yeah. uh, the evacuee. Yeah, yeah, that was very good. I've yeah. got to say, I really like these family stories, though. I just love hearing them, and and. And you know some of them are, are are necessarily kind of quite ordinary, but but no less interesting for that. But some of the stuff that's coming out, you know, whether it be chindit poems or rice pudding or or letters from Douglas Barlow, is just something extraordinary. Well, I uh, you know uh, I'll I'll be here's the thing: it's the bit of the podcast I can get the non-afflicted to listen to because they actually go, "Gosh, isn't that interesting?" So I can I I can't get I cannot persuade my daughters. Really, to sit down and listen. I mean, I thought to, Scarlett was to, getting quite into it, or she kind of got bored. She has got into it on and off. She gets into the sort of ones about a sort of cultural sides of stuff rather than she's not going to, uh, 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 you know, she's not going to listen to 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 us talk to Jonathan Ware about the Churchill. That ain't going to happen, right? But she, but, but 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 some of it, and she's she's nevertheless fascinated by the by the um the Nazi side of things rather than. Rather than British war effort, I think I think it's the thing that she's because after all she did GCSE Nazis, you know, like and A level Nazis, like everyone does. So so exactly. So she so she's sort of um, interested in that. But but the family stories because it's so because it's so sort of I mean it's interesting, isn't it? Because because it is family stories as well. Some of it is people's diary entries, but also some of it's this is what I know. I think I know my grandfather did, and so it's got that sort of lucid quality of it being handed down and you know and a big thing we have discovered is that actually people don't know or they think they know what happened in their family and then you go and find out and and it's something else altogether which i think's also really really interesting yeah the manila envelope that's found at the bottom of the drawer i mean i i also exactly all, all of them are tinged with a kind of sort of with a, with a sort of cloak of wistfulness though aren't they you 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 sense the regret that people didn't speak to these people earlier when they had the chance and, and there is this you know all of it is is suffused with melancholy yeah yes because because they're all gone and if they're not gone they're kind of not far from going and it's just it's it is depressing you know it is sad that that generation particularly you know you and i grew up with that absolutely just a part of life are suddenly soon to be no more well, this Thursday, um, we've got a special edition of the podcast all about the birth of the Spitfire with guest Paul Beaver, whose book I am tearing through, Spitfire People book I am... It's good fun, isn't it? Yeah, it's really, really good fun. A really, and a really, I, a, a, a great way of doing it. 
um, of, of approaching the subject because, you know, everyone's stories, the stories sort of hand on to each other like batons. So when you get to the test pilots, you go from Mutt Summers via a couple of other guys at the RAF back to Quill and, you know, and, and uh, that's really, really interesting. And, you know, the first guy to, the first guy to crash a Spitfire to bet, you know, like the, the, the sort of, that kind of minute detail, I think, is really interesting. The first person to belly land a, a single wing, um, a high speed fighter, you know, all that, all those kind of milestones in its uh, development. Really, really interesting. And then I've got to say, I'm a big fan of the beef. He's 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 one of life's can do people. You know, you, you rarely ring him up and ask him something and, and he says no. I mean, he always goes, yeah, that shouldn't be a problem, Jim. Um, and off he goes, you know, it's just. But he obviously he obviously really digs the Mark one as well. So, you know, he's. <laughs> <laughs> I, love uh, some kind of... I love the Mark One. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, well, and Friday, of course, marks the 85th anniversary of uh, of the fighter, the Type 300's first flight, because it wasn't called the Spitfire K5054. Yes. Yeah, that's right, exactly. Um, uh, uh, so uh, then we're live streaming, of course, on Thursday night. Join us live at 8:30 UK time for Slapstick Adventures. Uh, lots of fun last week, um, <laughs> thanks to the Wren. <laughs> Behind you. Um, she's not there now. Now, um, we're going to try and answer some of your questions, but we've gone full on primary source for you today. Because what did you find, Jim, that you sent to me? Yeah, well, I just, I, I mean, so this I got from um, Carlisle Barracks, which is the US Army Heritage and Centre, or I can't remember quite what it's called. But anyway, that, that's where they have the US Army has its basically its big archive. And all the Gavin papers are there. So, um, when was it I last there? Maybe kind of 18 months ago, something like that. Actually, I was there with PCA, uh, with Peter Caddick Adams. And so I went through all it, and I just photographed it all. And um, I've just been sort of looking through it because I've been writing about Market Garden very excitingly in my Sherwood Rangers book. Uh, and the Sherwood Rangers were working with the 82nd All-American. So um, I thought, oh, well, I'll just go back to all that Gavin stuff that I've got. Because I, I just, you know, I was, I was looking at it for Sicily, but I thought, well, while I'm here, I might as well just, you know, get everything I can. So I hadn't really looked at this before. Um, and it's his, his, you know, it's his account of his his take on Market Garden, what he what he thought about it and, and why the decisions were made and what he thinks, you know, should be taken note of for the future and all the rest of it. And it's just... It's really, really interesting because this is written contemporaneously, um, pretty much. Um, does it have a date on it? Um, July, July nineteen forty-five. Uh, no, fourth November, fourth November nineteen forty-four. Yeah, so pretty fresh. And it's sent to. It's sent to. Well, it includes extracts from. Uh, it's sent to Hap Arnold, isn't it? That's who it's for, isn't it? Um, uh, well, it's for the commanding general, commanding general. Uh, Staff School, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. But Hap Arnold's uh, been sent a copy. It's got bits of stuff from Breton um, uh, and Arnold in it. It's it's a very interesting document. I mean, uh, because after all, he he he, he says, um, you know, this was a, a a fantastically run show, all all in, doesn't he? Yeah. Actually, we can post this up on Patreon. We can we can post this up because there's there's no copyright with American stuff. It, it's it's very interesting because I mean the, my main takeaway from it is, is he says we um did we were all the time we were at full stretch. So you you, you everything eighty second airborne were doing, we we really didn't have we we were doing at, at our absolute limit. And he says, if we had a battalion less, we wouldn't be able to treat, achieve this. And if the Itali enemy had had a battalion more, we wouldn't be able to achieve it. He says that's in here some, which I think... Is that is a big area. I mean, you look at it. it he, oh, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He has yeah. got a lot to do, to oh, no. be fair. No, no, no. He's got, he's got an awful lot to do. Um, uh, uh, and, and in this, he's saying, as a matter of fact, the narrative account does not tell the whole story. So he's, so he's looking in. He's saying, hang on a minute. You know, there's been a version of events go around that isn't quite right. So there's a bit of... There's a bit. I mean, it's 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 really, really, really interesting. First of all, the first thing he says, though, is he says the planning for these things is faulty. He says this is. He says um, uh, if any outline plan is accepted by us and approved by Supreme Headquarters, we're invariably placed under the authority of one or the other of Army groups for detailed planning at their level. This is faulty. Many of the ground many of ground force commanders have indicated a desire for purely local and tactical employment of the airborne forces. 
Um, in this respect, their vision and education could be compared to that of the average senior ground commander concerning his conception of air support four years ago. So he's saying, he's saying, if you if the if the twenty first Army Group plan a thing, they have absolutely no an airborne thing. They don't know what they're doing. They have absolutely no idea how to deploy us. How to use us. And he says, so far as the 21st Army Group is concerned, I've been compelled to arbitrarily refuse to consider many of the projects submitted. And that, that, that's I, I fair. I think he's probably got a point on that, hasn't he? No, no, that's, complete, that's completely fair. Because, because stuff gets drawn up. I mean, after all, you know, this, the, the endless cancellations that have gone off. Stuff, stuff gets drawn up. Stuff gets ditched. Um, airborne forces, however by this point of the war, are acting outside their, outside their original conceptual um, uh, role, which is flanking on seaborne landings. That's what they're for. That's what they've been designed for, set up for. So, so, no, wonder there's, so there's no wonder there's some disconnect going on, because everyone's in a new situation. So I think he's right, but there's a, there, is an exp, there is an explanation for that. Uh, and also, let's, let's not forget that we're talking, you know, a little over a year since the first major airborne operation. Yeah. Yeah, and only, yeah, yeah, yeah. only and only kind of three months since the last mate, you know, the last proper the, one, the, yeah, the, the, pro- the, the proper airborne actually... operation, which which is where most of those guys have actually dropped. I mean, you know, it's only the only two of the parachute infantry regiments dropped on Sicily out of the eighty second, none from the hundred first. So you know, it is still really, 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 really new. And what was you know the the takeaway from Sicily is just absolutely that the army commanders are just going. Okay, we've got this stuff, and we might as well use it. Um, you tell me how to use it, and let's crack on. Brilliant, you know, with absolutely no concept of how it works. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And that hasn't yeah. really, you know, that's not going to massively change in that in a year, is it? Well, when, 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 when operations cha- are so infrequent, and it's certainly not going to change in three months. Um, uh, you know, from from D Day, is it that everyone? Uh, after all, I mean, what what have eighty second Airborne, hundred first Airborne been doing? They've been They've gone away and they've had to refit, replace, rebuild, haven't they? That's what they that that's clearly their priority. I mean, there will have been there will have been some post match reports, which after all lead to how the drop zones work out for first airborne. But I mean, I love this line where he goes, "Communications must be positive and well established between the bases from which operations are launched." It was like, duh, yeah, of course. Uh, uh, but, but that sort of underlying one of the major problems of Market Garden, and all of it goes back to kind of. There's just not enough time. There's not enough time to plan for this. This is only seven days in, in, in conception. I'll tell you what, we're going to take a break because um, there's so much in this. Um, uh, yeah, let's not spoil it. We don't want to do let's this. Let's not spoil shot. it. We'll be back. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Um, and James and James and I are engaged in primary source history, like 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 proper historians today yeah um <laughs> well it is it's, it's, it is it is wonderful looking i mean this is one of the exciting things about studying studying the past and studying the war is when you get your hands on documents like this i mean it, it really really is because you can read someone else's opinion about market garden and and goodness sake there's quite a lot of those opinions sort of swishing around but this is Gavin, you know. This is this is the commanding general of one of the airborne divisions, and and, and played an absolutely critical part in that battle and its outcome. So it's 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 fascinating to have this. Yeah. Well, so he says, I would like to present a few of the conditions which must be fulfilled to increase the chances of success of a large scale airborne operation. The first has been mentioned above. Don't send a boy to do a man's job. Concentrate the maximum force on the principal objective. This sounds. Well, exactly. This sounds trite, but the ground force planners persist in presenting a multitude of objectives. An all-out effort with everything that can fly must take the advantage of the initial surprise by dropping the maximum of supplies and reinforcements before the enemy can muster his air, flak and ground defences. All troop drops and landings from the outset must be in combat teams, no matter how small the combat team is. By this I mean that you cannot count on landing your parachutists today, hoping to land their heavy weapons and transport in a landing lift today or tomorrow. Boom, right there. And that's that's the thing that goes straight into varsity, is that everything you can do in one lift is done in one lift. Yeah, well, he's absolutely right about that, though, isn't he? He's completely, he's completely right about that. So, so that's that. I mean, that I find, I find that really, really interesting because he's obviously saying we were at full stretch for this whole operation. Um, uh, 
and you can't you can't divide your effort because at the top of the thing he says what does he say he says the absolute watchword is um application of the principle of war economy of force and mass which of course then leads us to so why what's why going on the growth speak heights well yes absolutely and and the concentration of maximum force on the principal objective so i think what he's saying is is that Unfortunately, we we weren't able to do that because we had too many objectives. Uh, And we had to decide what was the principal objective. And the principal objective, unquestionably, is capturing the Nijmegen Bridge intact. Yeah. But but he's arguing that, that taking the heights is a vital precursor to that. And so then we go to July 1945. So the second half of this document is a letter from the Office of the Theatre Historian. Theatre historian, 17th July 1945, um, to Chief of Staff, 82nd Airborne. Dear Sir, and so it's just from Colonel, uh, this is from Captain John G. Westover, um, saying, a complete history of Operation Market is now prepared in the theatre historical section. Blah, blah, blah. However, I have some initial needs. And question one is, I need a definition of the initial objectives of the 82nd Airborne Division. Was the capture of Nijmegen and the highway bridge considered part of the initial objective? Question two, what person, staff or headquarters made the decision to apportion the weight of the 82nd Airborne Division to the high ground rather than the bridge at Nijmegen? Why was more emphasis initially placed on the bridge bridge across the Maas and the Maas Wild Canal rather than the bridge at Nijmegen? Who made the decision to send the 1st Battalion 508th into Nijmegen on the evening of the 17th? Was um, uh, 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 the Colonel of G, 508th Regiment, ordered to move on the bridge or merely to set up roadblocks outside the town? And then I need a copy of the orders, uh, blah, 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 blah. Um, I mean, so, and then... So so clearly Westover's trying to put this report together and thinking, hang on a minute, why on earth didn't they just go all out to the bridge? Yeah. Which is, which is interesting. And so... um, Thank you for your letter. Yeah, <laughs> so, your dear, kind dear letter. Captain, yeah. dear Captain Westover, your letter of July seventeenth to my chief of staff regarding Operation Mark has come to my attention. So, in other words, someone's gone, uh, boss. This, you're going to have to answer this. I can't answer this. Um, uh, first, let me say that I'm very glad to find the theatre historian's office taking a close interest in this operation. Those of us who participated in the operation consider it a model airborne show. Yeah, now, isn't that's that just amazing? You see, isn't he means the landing, though, doesn't he? And he means the way they fought and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, though, uh, yeah, though, I have had the good por- uh, fortune to be present at the planning of most air- uh, of our operations in the ETO and participated in four of them. 82nd Airborne Division's participation in market was well conceived and very well planned, considering the short time available six days. The mechanics of his execution were almost perfect. The entire operation was conducted on an extremely marginal scale. So here we come to the bit I mentioned earlier. I do not believe that one battalion less could have, have done the job. And if the Germans had committed one good battalion more at any point of our perimeter, we would have been in serious difficulty. See, that's very interesting. Mm. Um, we therefore appreciate your interest in the operation. So... For the objective of the 82nd Airborne Division, I advise you to check the operations order of the British Airborne Corps. I quote the 82nd's mission. 82nd Airborne Division will seize and hold the bridges at Nijmegen and Grava with sufficient sufficient bridgeheads bridge to pass formations of the 2nd Army through. The capture and retention of the high ground between Nijmegen and Grosbeek is imperative in order to accomplish the division's task. Hmm. Right now... One of those things comes before the other, literally, doesn't it? Yeah. But, but capturing the bridge definitely comes before the heights. Well, that in the order. In the order. In the, in the order. written order. In the written order. However, it's imperative to hold the gr- high ground to accomplish the division's task, he says. Um, uh, or the order says. Well, I, I would, you see, I would interpret that as get the bridge, then secure the heights, because you've got to hang on to the bridge once you've secured it. And holding the heights will, will enable you to do that. But first of all, you do, you've got to get the bridges. So they seem to manage to do this, absolutely no problem at Grave. They get that bridge and they hold it, and that's great. But they don't at Nijmegen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
So what he I mean, says, you know, he's he's that experienced. How can you not? How can you interpret that any other way? The night. Well, I'll tell you why. Because the Nijmegen Grosbeek high ground was the only high ground in all of the Netherlands. Well, that is true. With it in German hands, physical possession of the bridges would be absolutely worthless since it completely dominated the bridges and all the terrain around it. I, I still think holding a bridge isn't worthless if you're holding it. You, you know, you look at the... Anyway, uh, 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 the understanding was therefore... I mean, it is just, just I mean, it, it's interesting, the Grosbeek Heights. I mean, you know, day to day, there's more buildings on them. Grosbeek itself is, is, is a large, larger town than it was... Um, back in 1944. But actually, the shape of all the woodland is pretty much the same. I- I've been looking at aerial photographs from 1944 this week, and it really, it's it's one and the same place. Beak, Mook, these places, they're all pretty much the same. Ziflik, another little village, just sort of, um, and Weiler and all these places, they, they all look the same. Um, it's very, very wooded on the top. Um, and what is really interesting, in the subsequent fighting that takes place around Grosbeek is that they do capture the heights, but most of the fighting is is off the heights. So the, the heights are in the middle, uh, bordered by um, the Vaal to the north and the Mars to the south. And between the rivers and the heights is a nice little bit of polder land. And that's where all the fighting takes place. It's not on the heights. Yes, well, yeah. Because the polder land is where the bridges are that's the bit that that's how you control the causeway isn't it well yes it is but 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 that's where the germans are attacking they're not trying to the germans are not trying to go straight up onto the heights they're, they're attacking around the sides well and also because 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 the, 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 the at one point there's a wayward intelligence report that says oh there's like a thousand panzers in the in the in you know over the german border you think well if there's a thousand panzers you're not going to do this operation full stop you know well Yes, and the and the, and the troops that are coming the troops that are coming from the Reichswald. So so you've got you've got this you've got Nijmegen. Then to the southeast you've got and an east you've got the Grosbeek Heights. You've got this little corridor of polderland due east of Nijmegen, which leads to the German border around Beek and Weiler and all the and Ziflik. Barely does 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 the forest of the Grosbeek Heights stop. Then the Reichswald begins, and and you're in Germany, and that's the kind of great wooded barrier that leads to Cleve and all the rest of it. Um, the other side of that, you've got the Wehrkreis Four, which is a is a regional recruitment and training centre, from which a corps is hastily established, built around one, um, one hastily put together, um, infantry division. And these guys are shocking. You know, they they are not well trained. So although you've got a a, a handful of guns, anti tank guns, a, ha- a handful of SPs, you, you know, you are you are not talking Falschmjäger here. You are not talking um, fanatical SS, Waffen SS. You are talking, you know, really scraping the barrel stuff. Now, so from although- an, an offensive force. You would have thought the attacking force coming up towards the Gross Peak Heights and, and on this polderland to the north and south of it are probably not going to be your highest grade troops. And that should have come into the reckoning when they're well, making however, a decision about I personally could I personally consider that the key to the accomplishment of the entire mission and thought that even if we were driven off the low ground around the bridge, if the high ground could be held, ultimately the second army could accomplish its missions. Its mission. I mean that you know, he says it was obvious that we should get we had to get the bridges across the Mars Wild Canal. Um, and he says that particularly he says that based on my experience in the past, particularly the bridges over the Mederek uh, River in Normandy, where I lost a major part of the 507th Parachute Infantry because of my lack of foresight in seizing bridges that would enable me enable us to maintain some tactical integrity within the division. So he's saying he's saying tactical integrity is is the thing that's really important. He's saying uh that 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 he's he'd be dividing his effort if he goes to the Nijmegen bridge, and that that command of the high ground is is the key thing. I think it's it's really really interesting this idea that you need that you need a a, ti- a, a tidy battle. You need to fight. You need to fight, you know tactical integrity and all that. I, th- I think that's really interesting because they don't have it 
on D-Day. One of the things that one of the things that especially the Americans really suffer from on D-Day, isn't it? Is that, is that the drops, the drops are confusing and confused. They don't have this tactical <laughs> integrity. That obviously, is the thing that really matters to him. So, so part of this must be a reaction to his experience of D-Day. Well, well sure. And, who... and before, I would say, because you know, what what is the what what is the five hundred um five hundred fifth um objective on Sicily is the Pianda Lupo, which is this this high ground just to the kind of northeast of Jella. You know, again, it's high ground that they've got to they've got to land on that high ground, take it, hold it. From from there, they control the roads below. And they can control. They they can deal with counterattacks. You know when they get to you know the eighty second um, um, on D Day. You know there is that stretch of high ground which is focused around San Mariglis, which then drops down to the Murderay, then drops down towards Utah Beach. You know it is again. It's about holding that high ground. You know when they are able to kind of see off the German counterattack over the Murderay at Lafayette, etc. That's because they've got the high ground. You know, it's not very high ground, but it's still higher than the surrounding countryside. So I just think that I think high ground is just so part of his kind of thinking, yeah, thinking that that, that he can't sort of really get beyond that. You know, high ground, well, I've and, got to get and, the high ground. I've got to get the high ground. And this and this idea that you need tactical integrity because because uh, that way you've then got tactical flexibility and you can you can react to situations far more, especially as especially as you have no. You know, and this is an airborne thing. There is no, there is no rear, um, uh, uh, ever. Um, and this is this is the other. This is what first airborne get hung up on. You know, uh, the, the idea that it's an untidy battle, and and uh, and you know, Urquhart gets very hung up on that. Hackett turns up saying this is an untidy battle. It's it's interesting that they. This is the thing they're they're concerned with is this idea of tactical integrity. When in fact, what actually you're doing is causing a chaotic situation to de to destabilize the enemy. Well, just just think what would have happened uh, if they by, 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 by doing an airborne landing. I mean what, what what just just imagine they'd use one of their battalions to go and take Grav and the other two just go to go hell for leather, helmet to go and get the Nymagan Bridge, secure it. You'd have done that in you know, within an hour or two of landing. I mean, you know, by the by the evening of the seventeenth, it would be in their hands. I mean it would be all over. So that gives them Plenty of time to then go up to the gross big heights. Yeah. All the time in the world. You know, they absolutely could have done both. I mean, I completely get the whole point about the importance of the gross big heights. But it's it again, it's about it's about the order in which you do it. You go you go hell for lever to get the bridge, secure the bridge, then you secure the heights. Yeah. You know, we're not talking about big distance here. I mean you can walk to the you could walk to the gross big heights in, you know, hour and a half, hour. Yeah. Yeah. F- from the bridge. I mean, it's not. Yeah. It's not I a mean, big distance. It's a matter of I a few mean, miles. What, what, what I will say though is, um, dominating ground is the thing that is the thing that does for First Airborne Division, um, or, or terrain is the thing that you know where, where where First Airborne are pushing into the town, and uh, and and they're on that by the Saint Elizabeth Hospital and the museum where the staffs are destroyed. There is that extreme slope, and the Germans are on the other side of the river, and that brickworks. And are able to pin them down. That that, that 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 if you don't hold the dominating ground in that situation, you are in you are in real trouble. So it does it does this does happen in this battle elsewhere that the Germans use the terrain tactically extremely effectively, and the and fourth parachute brigades attempt to go uphill into the woods around Wolfhazer is met with similar disaster. But that's mu- that's as much to do with the fact that they've that's on the third day of the battle. They've squandered, or the third day of the battle, they've squandered their surprise. They've, um, uh, and they're up against heavier armed troops that they have no response to because, because that's your problem if you're an airborne formation, is that you're essentially light infantry. So, I mean, it, it, it this is very interesting though. But he does say, I, your next question, what's person, staff, or headquarters made the decision to appoint the portion of the way to the 82nd Airborne Division to the high ground rather than the bridge at Nijmegen? This decision was made by myself and approved by my corps commander. So it was his, you know, he's absolutely saying the buck stops here, but I checked it with my boss. Um, So I don't know that you can put that on Browning. Really, you can. That's him saying to saying my assessment, sir, is this and Browning going carry on, Jim, isn't it? I think it doesn't read as 
the other way round where he's going, um, uh, where Browning's going, I insist you do this. This is what you need to do. This is Gavin's assessment that we have here. Well, right, we, we, right here yeah, but we us. talked about this the other day. You know, the the, the Browning insisting that he d- he took the high ground first. I mean, that's one of those that's one of those those quotes that's been quoted in every single book that's ever been written about Arnhem, um, for which there is no source, apart from just someone said he said it. Yeah. Whereas here you have this decision was made by myself, and approved by my corps commander. Um. So, so that's not so. So that could be you could see that as Browning's dereliction of duty. That Browning wasn't smart enough to see that he was wrong, but then Browning Browning hasn't led men in battle. Certainly hasn't led an an airborne division in battle. So Gavin coming to him going, well, this is what I'm going to do, Chief. You know, doesn't that's not he doesn't say. But it's also not that he doesn't send. You know, he sends um, Lindquist's um, 508th to go and get the bridge. But Lindquist only sends one company forward and that then gets put down into one platoon who then get lost and and can't find it. Uh, And it's just not pushed forward with enough determination. So actually, you know, a whole battalion should have been enough to get the get the bridge, to be honest. But I mean, two would have been better, obviously. But but it's not that Gavin doesn't send them to to the bridge. I mean, you know, and, and it's interesting about Lindquist because Lindquist is is. There's a lot of people that feels he shouldn't have been a commanding officer. He was much better as an XO, you know, the second in command where, you know, as a sort of pen pusher or the guy who was the admin guy, you know, the person who could sort of organise everything, but but didn't have that kind of sort of cut and thrust of a kind of real gung-ho fighting man. Uh, and it is, it is, you know, he's he is arguably, in terms of kind of fighting power, he's the weak link in the 82nd. And yet he's given the most important job, which again, is, that's got to be laid at Gavin's feet because he's the divisional commander and it's up to him who goes where but it's it's too late this is too late this is it's too late this is the thing is that that you 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 know you squander your tactical surprise however all of this ends with him saying um I I will be very pleased to receive any illustrations you prepare of the Nijmegen sector as I said to most of us who participated in a number of airborne operations, this has been a model of planning and execution, and we are appreciative of any interest shown in it by the theatre's historian, theatre historian's office, or higher headquarters. So, he he's saying, I didn't do anything wrong. Um, here are my decisions. Yeah. Here's how I they, hold my hand up. I hold my head Here's up how high. they stack up. Yeah, it is interesting. So the other thing is a bit, this whole thing about the, you know that they, they, they were. You know, then the guards turn up on the on the nineteenth, and um, they've recap. You know, they've they've regained some of the lost schedule. They turn up, and they can't. You know, they're going to sort of do a joint attack across, but they haven't got enough boats to do it. You know, the boats haven't come up. But presumably, that's sort of because no one's expecting them to have to go across in boats, are they? No, there's no. So why no. would the boats be there? I mean, if you if you're talking about sort of priority of kind of you know moving thirty core forward and material that you need and ammunition and food and supplies and guns and anti-tank guns and all the rest of it i guess boats are quite low down on the list aren't they because the whole point of it is that you've captured you've captured the bridge you capture the bridge i mean they take boats to the pegasus bridge um uh uh, they take boats for that that there are boats in those for the sappers i mean partly partly in case they need in case the bridges have been blown but also so they can check for explosives on the bridges there are boats taken for that, but not not that not that you could shift a battalion or a regiment, um, uh, you know, not enough to do a major a major. Right. Ta- but but then it, but, like but then it gets pushed back another twenty four hours. So it's not until the twentieth that that they're then getting across. And of course, by the twentieth, it's kind of it's it's too late, isn't it? But he's adamant. I mean, he, he you know, uh, physical possession of the bridges themselves is nothing if the if the terrain dominating these bridges is completely held by the enemy. In fact, he could have destroyed the bridges by shell fire or at least denied their use constantly if we permitted him to hold the high ground. This concept becomes elemental and very clear on the ground, although I suppose from this distance and from the map, it needs some explaining. There's a bit more than just some explaining. Well, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I've, if I've, the bridge, you know, I'm a fan was... of, I'm a fan of Gavin. You know that, you know, I kind of, I, I think he was really rated, and I think, I think this is, you know, one of very few mistakes that he makes. Actually, you know, he, he's he's completely fearless. He's a brilliant commander. He's he's much loved by his men. You know, he doesn't rant and rave. He's 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 quite, he's quite an intellectual, even though his his background, of course, is a is a humble one, and 
he's a deep thinker on modern combat and how things work and what can you know how you can improve the airborne arm and all the rest of it. He's just got it wrong on this, as far as I'm concerned. You know, I just I can't see there's any alternative. It. And, and and I think all this is down to the speed of which it's put together. And and I think it's part of his absolute Pavlovian response to any situation in which he finds himself, which is to get the high ground. Yeah. If the high ground were not held, it would have been captured before the British could succeed in establishing contact in force with the Nijmegen Bridge forces. So he's saying... If the bridge at Nijmegen were seized and held and the opposition were tough enough, it would have been a division operation in itself, such as developed at Arnhem. So he's saying if we'd held the bridge, but not the high ground, 30 Corps wouldn't have been able to rescue us at the bridge because they'd have had to clear the high ground and we'd have ended up stuck like First Airborne at Arnhem. That is basically what you're saying. But I think what we're saying is is he could have done both as well. Get the bridge, then get the heights. You know, there's no way that 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 core, that hastily cobbled together core of really, really bad low grade German troops is going to take the gross big heights in in, well, in or, 24 or, hours. Well, or winkle him off the the you know the bridge if he's in the bridge and in the town because after all the 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 Germans in the town take some winkling out when the guard, when guards armor turn up because they fight very determinedly. I mean, in a sort of mirror action of what. Um, uh, Frost's men do at the bridge in, in Arnhem uh, you know being blasted out of houses one by one by armour in the end um, uh, I mean what I've well, got to find it, out is exactly what they knew about the enemy before they dropped I don't well, have that well, I don't have that at my fingertips so I don't know well well it, well and well what who knew as well <laughs> you know how how far the ultras actually trickled down yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Anyway, How much well, did Gavin know about the enemy that he was up against? I suppose that's what yeah, I'd be really interested yeah, to know. Yeah. Well, you know what? We had some questions to answer and we failed miserably. That the... <laughs> well, this coming Friday, of course, thanks for listening, everyone. This coming Friday marks the 85th anniversary. I th- I th- if you could hear us scratching our heads doing that, that's a good thing. This coming Friday marks the 85th anniversary of the first fl- flight of the Spitfire. And Thursday's podcast will celebrate that fact with our great our guest, Paul Beaver, who's fantastically entertaining and, and wore pilot shades for the whole of the Zoom conversation, which made him the most infinitely cool guest we've had on. Um, uh, Thursday night is our regular live stream night. We'll see you all at 8.30 UK, um, 8.30 PM UK time for that. Thanks very much, everyone. Cheerio. Bye for now. Cheerio.